Welcome back to the Staying Muddy podcast. Thank you, Dean Case, for joining us this evening. Um, Dean Case needs no introduction. He has been an engineer for Mazda, Ford, Nissan, everywhere you can think of. Um, and he's actually now a consultant as um, for Motivo Engineering. Uh, I'm sure most of you know him through the SAE world and and have crossed paths with him at some point. But um, thank you, Dean, for um, for being here with us today. Yeah, happy to be here. You've been around and uh, had a lot of interesting speakers on SAE SoCal. Um, you've gone, you've done like tours for the students yeah. um, and you've read a lot of books. There's a lot of books that we have um, authors come and talk to us about. Yes, <laughs> um, mostly automotive books and they're all really interesting. So uh, the first question is kind of fun. What have been your favorite speaker, your favorite tour and the favorite book that you've read just wow. in general. <laughs> uh, we've, had, we've had some amazing, I've used SAE as an excuse to cold call people I want to hear from. So, you know, <laughs> years ago, we had Dan Gurney as a speaker. You know, and, okay. you know, unless, you know, some of the younger viewers might not recognize that name, but Dan Gurney is an icon of American motorsports. You know, he won, he raced in Europe in the 60s, won Le Mans, you know, his cars have won the Indy 500. He's just been there, done that. His shop's in Santa Ana. And he's actually been an SAE member for many, many years. So we just got Dan to come and tell stories about racing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and everything. It was an amazing uh, presentation. Uh, Any kind of favorite story? Favorite uh, story of his that you told? Oh, uh, well, actually, yeah, <laughs> there's so many great Dan, uh, <laughs> Dan Gurney stories. One of the funniest ones re was related to Carol Shelby. He didn't tell that at the SAE meeting, but when Carol Shelby passed away and, you know, Shelby did, you know, all the four GT 40 stuff and everything else. And yeah, uh, Shelby's got an amazing history himself, but uh, Dan at Carol Shelby's memorial service, it says when they made Carol, they broke the mold, which is a good thing. Cause if they hadn't, he would have sued the hell out of the mold maker. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Dan just had some amazing uh, stories that he told about, you know, the development of the cars and, one of our members had just basically went through and uh, took a bunch of photos off the wall in Dan's shop, scanned them in. And then we put a photo up and Dan would just tell a story like, hey, what was happening here? And he, he just talked about the development of wings back in the 60s and early 70s and just, you know, the way innovation would take place that, you know, you'd have a problem one Sunday and the car would be redesigned in many aspects by the next weekend. And now so many of the races or the spec cars, you couldn't make a change. That you know, if your car is bad, you're kind of stuck with it in certain aspects for the whole season. Uh, but that's kind of the, the price of cost containment. But uh, another great speaker we had was Malcolm Smith, uh, legendary motorcycle racer. And he talked about the early days of racing in the Baja 1000. And he's one of the few guys who won the Baja 1000 both on motorcycles, then years later in four wheelers. And uh, he's still alive and well. He has a motorcycle shop out in Riverside. And if you, he's got a little mini motorcycle museum there upstairs at his shop. So if you're ever in Riverside, go visit Malcolm Smith Motorsport. But he was a, a great speaker. Uh, tours, we, um, you know, one of my favorites is we got a personal tour of Parnelli Jones's private collection. And, you know, that was a great one because it wasn't open to the public. Uh, but we knew Parnelli and he, uh, valued uh, SAE 
members. So he gave us a private tour of his collection. We did the same thing a few years back for the students at Vic Edelbrock's collection. And here again, private car collection, not open to the public, but we used SAE to kind of open the doors to get in there. So those were some pretty memorable ones. Uh, books, I, I can't even begin to tell you, uh, you know, I've got so many that are favorites. You got a lot of them behind you. What's that? You got a lot of them behind you. Yeah, exactly. I got a lot, and that's not even all the books I've got. So I've got <laughs> a bunch up above too. So, um, no, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a, a list if you want to post something on. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, but there, there's a lot of great ones. And we've had some, even this year, like Chris Willis, uh, who was an engineer on the Nissan Electromotive GTP team. He did a book on uh, that car and he did a webinar for us uh, a few months back. Was that, that the shadow did. one? No, the shadow one. Yeah, Pete, Pete Lyons wrote the shadow book. That's another one. Excellent. Uh, anything that Pete Lyons writes, Pete's done a bunch of books. He's probably got at least well over a dozen books out there. They're all great. So. Hey, but the one that you mentioned, what was that one about? Uh, it was the, the Nissan GTP race car, the IMSA GTP program from the late 80s, which basically this Nissan car crushed Porsche. Yeah, you know, Porsche, Porsche was the dominant car in the class in the mid 80s. And Nissan just developed this beast of a car that was I think with qualifying boost, it was like 1,200 horsepower, just unbelievable. Was it like more of like a history book or a design book? It was a, it's the engineering that went into the car because he was an engineer on the team. You know, the difference, uh, and that's pretty cool on some of these books to where it was someone who was actually a participant in that one. And actually, I think I can find that one. <laughs> so this is uh, his book. And you can watch the presentation on the SAE SoCal a YouTube channel, but uh, this, this book I think is like five pounds, but it's very technical. Uh, I mean, it's not, he's not putting the equations in there, but he talked about the engineering development process and what it took, because uh, for several years, the car was not competitive. It took them multiple iterations to develop it into a, a championship winning car. Wow, that's, I mean, you have, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. No, it, it, you know, there's so many of these people around here and, you know, I would encourage, you know, hopefully once we get back to where we can do on-site things, there's a lot of people that you could bring on campus to Cal State LA who can tell some pretty interesting first-hand stories. Yeah, definitely. Like even, even Malcolm Smith, like he, that's in Riverside. Like I, yeah. I mean, even, I think it has to do along with us being a younger generation. We don't necessarily know. We all, all we know is like what's going on on YouTube and stuff yeah. like that. California is like super rich in motorsports history. Like, yeah. oh man. Oh, well, man. it's funny that you talk about some iconic names. You got to be kind of a motorcycle nerd to know who Malcolm Smith is. But he was in a movie, there was a documentary in the early 70s called On Any Sunday about motorcycle racing. Okay. And Steve McQueen was in it, you know, the, the, the legendary actor. Yeah. Steve McQueen was in it because he wanted to hang out with Malcolm Smith. Steve McQueen thought Malcolm Smith was the coolest guy around. So that's how cool Malcolm Smith was or is still. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of feed a little bit more into, into SA, even a part of SA for I think the longest, what are we talking about? Like the eighties. Um, yeah. How have you seen competition change both like maybe in like formula and Baja, maybe like some big takeaways you've noticed throughout the years. It's like, wow, from, 
back in the 80s, Baja has definitely not been the same as, as what, what we're looking at now in, in the late 2000s. Well, late the teams, you know, the teams that do really well understand that it's not just, it's not building a race car, it's not a race car competition. It's an engineering competition. And the smart team recruits the business majors to help out and get them involved. That the best teams are multidisciplinary. If you just have a team of mechanical engineers, you're not going to be a great team. You need to have electrical engineers involved. You need to have some people from the business side, and maybe even you know if you have an art score design, you know, group or something, get them involved. It's developing a well-rounded product and. The early days, you know, it was very haphazard what teams put into in terms of the cost report and the business report. Uh, now they're much, much better. But, you know, it's interesting to look at it. Back, I found a, in my archive, uh, some of it predates my involvement, but I found this document that the first SA Baja in California was 1976. There was five schools entered. And Cal State LA was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so your history goes back to 76. My history goes back to 81. Okay. And, you know, in 86, uh, we hosted Formula or uh, SA Baja up at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo because uh, we were, none of us wanted to go to El Paso, Texas, where it had been the past couple of years. And so we thought, well, we should host it and make it easier. It turned yeah. out running the events more work than building the car. Uh, so we didn't do so well as a team that year. <laughs> from a competition standpoint, but, and then ultimately, you know, Formula is a spin-off of Baja. Baja was the original and then Formula was a derivative of that. Okay. And, you know, Baja, I think has maintained, in my mind, a better purity to it and of developing a proper product, you know, and really looking at everything related to the manufacturing and finding additional markets. I mean, I've been really impressed over the last few years that, you know, not everyone's trying to say, yeah, this is a race vehicle. They're looking at other applications for an off-road vehicle, whether it's safety related, you know, fire department, forestry, you know, uh, mountain rescue, all kinds of different scenarios, which shows a lot of creativity. The formula thing, there's a lot, in my mind, a little bit too much of people copying one another. And it's like, people just look at, who won last year? How do we make last year's winning car 3% better? It's like, you're kind of missing the point of the competition. Right, right, right. And so, I mean, it's good. I mean, the biggest changes is the fact that industry really, you know, it, it came off in the 90s was the big shift for me. Because um, in the 80s, Formula SA used to bounce between different schools. It was just held in parking lots. And then 1991 General Motors was the one to figure out we don't have the time or budget to go visit 40 schools. Let's invite 40 schools to come to General Motors. And so that was really where it ramped up with industry involvement. And the reason, you know, industry, we don't care who wins. You know, we're not looking, you know, we're not going to decide, oh, I'm going to hire this student because they were on a winning team, not this student who was on a 27th place team. They're looking to meet smart people and see who they can engage with and oh yeah Juan you know or, or Crystal really impressed me I want to get a resume they don't walk away remembering where you finished they just remember <laughs> oh that was a smart person yeah you know and, and that's why the big shift in it and I think that 
some teams have really understood that and embrace it. And other teams, you get a little bit too much of the motorsports mentality that all they're concerned with is we want to win. Winning, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they want to win the endurance event and impress the design judge and anything else they don't care about. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a mistake. I definitely have seen that. Uh, even in our team, there's certain areas we neglect. Um, like, I don't think that we started um, thinking about it too much until more recently that the cost report is like yeah. one of the places where it's kind of this black box still. I don't know if, it, if it's still true, but our team kind of hasn't figured out too much in terms of like what makes like a really, really great cost report. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, you're right. That's true. We've always sort of followed the center, but we've done the year prior and just always tried to be more specific when it comes to the cost report, but what it actually comes down to is still um, something that the teams are working on for sure. And, and uh, just to kind of uh, go back a little bit, Dean, we spoke, I mean, um, before um, about how SoCal used to do a lot better as, as SAE teams. Um, and now it's sort of shifted up to, you know, the Midwest up to Michigan and stuff like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that as well? Well, I don't think that they did. There was fewer teams involved. And I think in Baja, I think the California teams are still pretty good because we've got a lot of off-road heritage and experience around. So overall, I think the teams do okay there. Formula has been, in my mind, you know, it's altered because of, a lot of the European teams who are spending just insane amounts of money. You know, the schools, they've got budgets that blow anything away that we've seen particularly at a state school level. Um, and I think they're kind of here again, missing the point. Uh, but when I talk to students, when I give my careers talk, one of the key questions I'll ask is if you have two choices, do you want to win the competition, have no job offer, or finish 41st and have five job offers? You know, I want to work with the students who are looking to showcase their skills because my measure of success, you know, I'm really thrilled that the two of you have found cool jobs in Southern California and joined our board. That's great. And, you know, whenever five years or 10 years from now, when you might be looking to change jobs, your SA involvement will allow you probably the inside track of finding other opportunities. That's my measure of success that you've, you've succeeded in industry. Because I've seen it where teams, you know, put everything into winning the competition. And, you know, frustration, I was there at Formula a few years back on behalf of Motivo, looking to hire some electrical engineers. So I went around to the teams, particularly those who are running Formula, the electric class, and went to the faculty advisors I knew and said, okay, who's your rock star EE on the team? And faculty advisor or the team leader said, oh yeah, pull this person over here. I go, great. Do you have a resume? Oh, no, I didn't bring one. Well, why are you here? <laughs> you know, it's like you missed the whole point of why you're there that, you know, if you did that, cause you know, it's like, I give him my card. It's like, okay, if you can follow up with me and get me a resume, you can probably get you an interview. And most of those students didn't do that. So that, that's a huge frustration uh, that certain schools just kind of, in my mind, missed the point. Yeah. I hope whoever's listening, if they're yeah. listening, bring your resume to competition. <laughs> yeah, and, or just have it. Actually, if you go to any SAE event, have a resume with you. Because I mean, nice you know, when you're a student, you're at that one point in your career 
when you can be really blatant about your job search. And the more that people know what you're looking for, the more they will help you. I mean, if you're in a career, you know, five or 10 years in or even longer, you know, you decide you want to change jobs, you really probably don't want your boss to find out you're looking to change jobs. So you got to kind of be very sly in your search. As a student, there's no reason to be shy about it. Just tell everybody what you're looking for. And you'd be surprised at how many people might help you if they know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've been, you've been harping us for years, Dean, about the students not taking advantage of everything that SAE has to yeah. offer after, you know, competition and stuff like that. But even in school, you know, there's, there's scholarships, there's internships, there's all kinds of other things that, you know, uh, and I joke with the SAE headquarters staff, who I, I love the staff back there, but I'm the biggest cheerleader. I'm also a critic and that there's, we've done as an organization, we've not done a great job of communicating those aspects of SAE to students. And so I visit a lot of schools who, I've run to students who think that the only thing SAE does is run student design competitions, which in the overall scheme of what SAE International does is a minor aspect. Right. So we're a victim of our success of having these great competitions, but we have not done a good job of conveying to the students the bigger message. And so that's why, you know, happy to talk about things like this on a group like this. So, you know, if I, if we reach one or two students who goes to SA.org and discovers a scholarship, that's huge. Yeah. You know, or a student who signs up and gets an online mentor. You know, these are all opportunities that are available for, you know, next to nothing. I mean, and students should also be members of potentially another group or two, you know, all the women should be members of SWE. You know, it's a great group. You know, SHIP's a great group. We just did an event co-hosted with SWE, SHIP, and Nesby mm. because, you know, there's other groups. SAE, we are industry focused, but we don't cover every need of an engineer, if you will. You Thank know, you, Juan, for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. Imprinted in my brain. <laughs> What's that? I'll, I'll also, well, because Juan was, was um, he was part of the, the student activities board that put that together. He and Reggie recently yeah. joined, so they, they were able to participate in that. And um, I ended up switching over to the communications team, so we'll, we'll whip that website into shape in no time. <laughs> <laughs> you, won't get, you won't stop getting emails from me about SAU events. <laughs> All right, so let's let's go on to the next question. Um, so we talked about like kind of how competition has changed, um, but it's it's kind of funny because we've been told, or you know, that that you have stories about Cal State LA about the teams back in the days. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, one of my favorites is you know, uh, Dr. Bachman's a great faculty advisor. And you guys, you've had several really uh, notable ones over the years. The one I have the fondest memories about, and I don't know if you know the name, Jim Ataro. Uh, I actually don't know who that is. I, I consider myself somebody who knows a good amount of the history because I had to put it on the, the team website and stuff. So I did like a good amount of investigating, but we kind of lose touch. So I actually, I, that's one name that I actually haven't come across. Well, should, I don't remember the exact timing, I was in Michigan from 93 to 98. So when I came back from uh, Michigan when I worked for Ford, I joined Nissan. 
and I got re-involved with SAE SoCal. And one of the first people I met was Dr. Jim Ataro, who was the faculty advisor at Cal State LA at the time. And he was just a he always wonders like how much coffee have you had this morning? Because he was always very amped up and everything, just uh, very passionate about what he was doing and supporting the students. And uh, there was some in, some strong interest at the time in electric vehicles, and I was doing electric vehicles at Nissan. And it's interesting how things work out timing wise. At the in 1998, Nissan was struggling. Uh, they were, you know jokingly referred to as beleaguered Nissan at the time, they were 20 billion in the red globally. And that was before uh, Renault stepped in and uh, you know, the merger took place and Nissan's fortunes took off. But we were operating on very, very lean budgets. And we had an event coming up, we were invited to participate in the Michelin Challenge Babendum, which was a showcase the Michelin Tire Company was gonna do out at Auto Club Speedway in Fontana, showcasing uh, environmental vehicles. And we had some vehicles to take out there, but we, were, we didn't have enough staff to support it. And so I called up Dr. Ataro and said, do you think your students would like to come out and work with us? And we, we brainstormed a plan to where, I think we, Nissan donated $5,000 to Cal State LA. And then we had the students and we, and we gave all the, I think it was your boss, I don't remember if it was the formal team. No, it was super mileage, it was super mileage. Oh. And, uh, we had everyone on the um, Cal State LA Super Mileage team. They brought their car out, but we had them all in Nissan shirts. We had them driving our Nissan electric vehicles and hybrids and everything in the competition. <laughs> and, we, and we trusted them. It's kind of like, so we had college students driving it, and we, other teams had paid professionals. Uh, Honda had hired teams you know, who were really good at very uh, efficient driving, because this was a competition. What kind of range could you get out of your electric car? Uh, how much uh, miles per gallon could you get out of your hybrids? And we had a bunch of college students who had only driven the cars like 30 minutes before the competition started. <laughs> and so we joked that if we did, if we won, that was great. If we lost, well, it's because we had a bunch of college students help us out. <laughs> you the reality, reality was we, we were able to give the students a really cool experience. And it led to uh, someone you should invite to your, do a podcast, Steve Lamb. Uh, Steve mm -hmm. Lamb, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's what led to Steve Lamb joining Nissan. We met him there, and I don't know if we I don't remember if we took his resume back or he just applied online after that. And he had a pretty cool Nissan career until um, 2006, when he and I both quit rather than moved to Nashville. And Steve set up his own business, so he's running his own uh, automotive repair facility. Uh, but that's a really cool Cal State LA success story. But I like the fact that it was all tied in <laughs> to uh, SAE and Dr. Ataro and everything. To where we had a need, and we were able to turn that need. You know, we couldn't afford to pay some outside consultants fifty grand, so we donated five grand to Cal State <laughs> LA. Which at the time that was a huge uh, donation for the super mileage team. The Cal State LA teams will do anything for money. <laughs> Yeah, but, but, more <laughs> but more importantly, we got to showcase the students in front of industry and media and stuff. So, so that, that's one of my favorite Cal State LA stories, just, you know, we were able to do that. And then uh, later on, we had um, a U.S. electric car 
uh, EV at Nissan, just as kind of a benchmark, because in 1998, there weren't really any EVs out there to do comparisons with. Like, how good is your car? You know, we have nothing to compare against. So we bought a U.S. electric car, which was kind of a piece of junk. <laughs> but uh, when we were done testing, we ended up, we donated it to Cal State LA for their lab because, you know, they go, yeah, we want any electric car. We don't care what it is. <laughs> uh, I think it got destroyed a few years ago. I asked Dr. Bachman, he said it was gone. But if you're doing a history of Cal State LA, I don't uh, know SAE, uh, Dr. Ataro deserves a chapter in there. All right, we'll definitely reach out to these people and see if they want to come join us because yeah. we can always use guests. That's a funny history. And the solar car, our solar car team, uh, I don't know how long it was around. I don't think it was very long, but they definitely did well in a lot of their competitions. Yeah, yeah, the Solar Eagle. Yeah, so it's kind of a shame that they like their team dropped out. And EcoCar too, they they didn't get their application approved to continue. So they they had, I think it's only three years that they've been doing it, and they had to drop off of the competition because their application didn't get approved. Well, I I'm we'll see a if well, they come back. The I think Baja is really the best bang for the buck. You know, in terms it, of. It's been around for a really long time. I think right. that's a really big advantage they have. But they did have times where there was very little recruitment to the point that it's like five-man teams where like, yeah. that's, that's who was keeping the team alive and probably even less at other points. But yeah, uh, yeah so they had, they had scares with like having the team die out as well. But uh, more recently, we've we've kind of had a bit of a revival in that sense. And I think the formulas, the formula team's coming back up again too. Um, so their, their retention is getting a little better too, but it's kind of hard. Oh, it's very hard. And, and Harley just, the reason I'm so pro Baja is just the budgets are man, more manageable. The formula gets more expensive and then solar and some of the other ones, partly just based on where the competition is, the travel budget. Yeah, and That's we right. we pay for our students to travel. Like they don't they don't pay for more than maybe like food. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we we do their transportation. We do if the hotel has breakfast, we pay for the hotel and the breakfast. And well, yeah, it's like if you got lunch money or dinner money, like that's pretty much all you need. Is that money coming from the school or is that yeah from the fund? Wow, oh that's great. Yeah, well, uh, like the traveling stuff. Yeah, there's like a separate like school travel budget, but oh I yeah, kind of. But that usually just covers like transportation stuff, I guess. But yeah. it's a lot of it's fundraising stuff. Because I remember for yeah. New York, we definitely, especially since we did do two comps. New York was tough. <laughs> but we made it, and we got it was like 16 people across the country, and yeah, yeah, know. that was tough. Great. First time that we did two competitions. That's why it was like we hadn't. Like, it was almost like a last-minute decision that we made. Yeah. And, like, so we didn't have, like, we didn't have a budget planned out to cover both competitions. It was just like, well, like, <laughs> let's, let's just do it and see what <laughs> happens. And, yeah, we, we paid for registration for that competition without knowing if we would be able to bring up the money to go. <laughs> and it worked out. So it was cool. <laughs> we were hungry over there, though. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Let's let's keep it moving. So, um, as far as you know that that kind of that struggle goes, 
what do you see as key factors for keeping your formula and your Baja team really successful? One of the key things, obviously a great faculty advisor is key. Because uh, we've seen a number of schools, right now we're trying to talk to both UC Santa Barbara and LMU, both of which had great teams, but then somewhere along the way, all the seniors graduated and there was no handoff and the faculty advisor kind of faded out. And so now we're trying to reestablish both of those. So faculty advisor is key, but the other thing is trying to not have a team that's all seniors. There's too many schools, I think, to where, you know, it's a one-year class project, all seniors. And there's no reason one group of students at any school can't capture magic for one year. But if you don't do a good handoff, it all falls apart. And so the teams that really, I think, do the best consistently are teams that have an almost equal 25% first year, second year, third year, fourth year. And yes, I know that at any Cal State, everyone's on a five, six, or seven year program. <laughs> that hasn't changed, you know, but having that span and finding ways to incorporate, finding things that first and second year students can do to where when they get to be a senior, they're really much stronger. And then they've already been to competition. If you can have a bunch of people going to competition who've never been there before, if the entire team is all rookies at the competition, it's hard to do well. You know, and so I really encourage you to make sure that you let, you know, some of the second and third year students take key roles based on their ability and, you know, uh, work to take leadership roles if possible, you know. Yeah, definitely. I think our, our, the success of our team is greatly owed to the fact that we started like being not aggressive, but we, we definitely started recruiting more intentionally and yeah. in more recent years like our team captains have gotten younger and younger like Javi where's Javi and he's not even in his last like he's not even graduating yet and it's almost like the first year that we've had somebody who had enough experience and knowledge passed down to them that they could fill a captain role and I mean the proof is in the numbers right like we went from 62nd to 20 was it 29th yeah well, the other thing in every school i mean how you organize the team is up to you but i've seen also a lot of six examples of where you split the role of team manager and chief engineer and the chief engineer needs to be someone really technically sharp and can manage all the engineering subsystems below the team manager doesn't even need to be an engineering major necessarily it could be a business major but it's someone to make sure that just everything's flowing, con conflict resolution, mm -hmm. fundraising, engaging with industry and alums, all of that. And that's a critical role. And if the chief engineer is also trying to do all those things, sometimes engineering failures occur because they're not managing that job. So that's something to consider, you know, if you can split it up that way. And yeah. you know, one, one of the funniest ones, an observation that I've just kind of come to in the last couple of years is, you know, when I, I like to look at resumes, what are your non-engineering jobs even? You know, that, and I know that, you know, basically anyone who went to Cal State is usually working part-time at least. 
while they're going to school. And I see a lot of times the students don't list what they did that wasn't an engineering job. It's like, no, I want to know what it is. And the reason I want to know is because sometimes there's some skill sets you learn elsewhere that are surprisingly applicable. And uh, one of them is restaurant management. And I've seen this a couple times now. I wouldn't have, it didn't click the first time, uh, but after I ran to like three people in a row, who had managed high-end restaurants, who were then the team manager on a Formula Baja team that are really, really good. Because managing a restaurant is very difficult. You've got customers who want their food perfect. You've got the wait staff who wants big tips. You want, you've got the back of the house, you know, the cooks and the cleanup crew who wants to be treated with some respect. You've got the owner. You know, you've got all these conflicting things to manage. And if you can manage that, it's pretty good training to manage a bunch of engineers on a program. I had never I mean, considered that. I never would have thought that until I ran to like three in a row over the course of one year. Three of the best team managers I met all had that on their resumes. Wow. <laughs> you heard it here first. Go send your team manager to, to manage a restaurant for a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or find a restaurant manager who likes cars and recruit them onto your team. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'd hire them. We are having a Panda Express collab fundraiser all day Wednesday, December 30th with our sister team, Formula SAE. Available nationwide. Place your order for pickup or delivery applying code 901442 in the coupon code box during online checkout at order.pandaexpress.com or app. Again, you can use the code 901442 on December 30th when purchasing Panda Express anywhere in the U.S. Thanks. So you know a lot um, in terms of automotive history through SAE, through your experience on the teams, yeah. um, just like your passion for, for F1 racing and all that stuff. Um, and so you've, you've like, you've built up, I almost, I actually think of you a lot from like my personal experiences with you as kind of like a walking history book, <laughs> uh, if you'll take that compliment. Yeah. Um, so I guess the question is like, how does somebody who's kind of, you know, maybe has a more like limited world and like you've always been a student you've always kind of like you have an interest in cars or you have an interest but like you haven't really built up that knowledge so like how what's a good way to to have to build up that knowledge in terms of like whether it's technical or just historical like how do you build that that library for yourself a lot of it's just is reading and going <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny, a great source for uh, inexpensive books is find your public library and check for the Friends of the Library Shop. And they usually sell books there like one and two, $2 each. And so, you know, I bought a lot of expensive car books and I also bought a lot of cheap car books. So, but I read a lot now. It's amazing how much you can find on YouTube and some pretty cool videos. But it's kind of like any source of news you got to kind of fact check and verify what the source is, that it's accurate. Um, but a lot of it, you know, here again, if Cal State LA, because of your location, you know, you can get some people who are firsthand experts, you know, people who are involved in it. If you want to know about designing sports car suspensions and aerodynamics, you could get Chris Willis to come up and talk about his experience with Nissan. 
there's you can get Trevor Harris to design other race cars. There's a whole bunch of people that you can bring in uh, to tap into. You know, you're in a resource rich area, uh, but I just say start your library, check out some you know cool books. I'll send you a list of some ones that you know because I think it is important to know the history of the sport or the industry. Uh, you know, and the reason when we did the um, the student uh, webinar a few weeks back, I wanted to have the Formula One alums talk about what it was really like to be a Formula One engineer. Because if your knowledge of racing is what you learned on your Baja car or your Formula car and watching Formula One TV, you're gonna be disappointed. You know, because what I like about Baja is you can be creative and there'll be failures and failures are not really failures to a certain degree. You tried something, you know, in industry, you tend to be run safe. Like, well, we can't risk having a, a failure out in the marketplace. Well, as a student, go for it. Try it. Try something really risky on the car. As long as it's not a safety issue, you know, <laughs> if you want to try something crazy, do it. And if it doesn't work, as long as you understood why it didn't work and can explain that, that's great. It's better to have you do a, a failure on a student project than a failure on industry <laughs> project where you'll get fired. And then yeah. if it doesn't work, they'll always just add another rule to the yeah. rule book. <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, ultimately, you know, just going to races and stuff, any races, club races and stuff, and you know, go out, you know, if if students want to get some experience, go to an SCCA or a NASA club race and just go up and ask questions about the car and you'll find a surprising number of club racers are engineers they might be an electrical engineer in a you know biomedical company or a civil engineer designing bridges but they have fun on the weekend racing cars and they would welcome an engineering student helping out on their crew they won't pay you but at least you're getting some experience <laughs> and you're getting, you can probably pick up a mentor that way or some experience but you know, I, I do, you know, I've worked with so many teenage race drivers when I was with Mazda Motorsports. And, you know, I'd have, I'd ask drivers some history questions. And they, oh, yeah, I know the history. I know the, the old stuff, like Ayrton Senna. Well, Ayrton Senna to me is not the old stuff. That was kind of the middle stuff. You know, <laughs> the old stuff is Fangio and Jimmy Clark and, you know, names from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, you have to understand that a lot of this predates all of us, you know. Yeah, but now, you know, you can find some incredible stuff on YouTube, you know, uh, some, and some of it is not like a modern video. Um, I found one, you know, some documentaries done in the 60s on Can-Am and IndyCar racing. So you can find some really cool stuff out there to watch. We'll get some YouTube channel recommendations from you too. Yeah. yeah. Later yeah. on. Go to the Reddit. We'll post them there. Okay. <laughs> We have a well, we have a Reddit channel for anybody who kind of wants to discuss the podcast. I'm hoping it picks up a little more. It's a little lots of crickets in there right now, but <laughs> yeah, no, I know how that goes. We're I mean, we're still not getting much of any discussion on uh, you know SA SoCal's YouTube channel or Facebook page yet. So it takes time. Wendy. <laughs> so so I think everyone, um, including myself, wants to know uh, from the man that needs no introduction. Uh, we want to know your first car. We want to know your favorite car. And we also want to know 
if you could own any car, what would it be? Uh, first car was a 1967 Mini Cooper. <laughs> an, an original Mini, a real Mini. Like that. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, all my friends, you know, I graduated in high school in 81. All my friends, I mean, I had like three friends who had 67 Camaros. You know, a 67 Camaro was the hot ticket at my high school in 1981. <laughs> I wanted something different. And have you ever seen the, the original movie, The Italian Job? I haven't, no. Uh, there was a bad remake a few years back, but there was one in night, late, like 68 or 69 or something, and Michael Caine. It was a gold heist, and they made away with the gold in three Mini Coopers. <laughs> and that was the movie that inspired me to want to own a Mini Cooper. <laughs> it was such a cool car. So uh, I bought one that was in kind of rough shape because it was what I could afford, and my dad and I restored it. So that, that was cool. I learned a lot on that. Um, favorite car that I've owned? Um, I guess you don't have to have owned it. Yeah. It's just your favorite car in general. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the car that I'll never be able to afford, uh, but I think for me, the, the ultimate exotic car was the original Lamborghini Miura. Mm, mm. And that was just such a gorgeous car. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, favorite, I mean, uh, I'm biased on this one, but the Miata, because it was such an affordable sports car. Uh, I mean, I'm, I love the Mura, but by, for the most part, I don't care about exotics because I'm not interested in a car that's more expensive than most people's homes. That's just not attainable. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the stuff about the uh, car that may or may not have gone 336 miles per hour, and they're calling it a production car. It's like, yeah, you built one, maybe two. That's not a production car. You know, if you look at General Motors, what they've done with the new Corvette, you know, that's unbelievable performance for under $80,000. That's incredible. A lot of people hate on me because those are the cars that I want. <laughs> Which ones? Juan Juan has said some something or two to me about wanting a Corvette. <laughs> well, I don't actually want the Corvette, but I just respect I do. Yeah. You know. But but the performance for dollar is incredible. And yeah. it, it's easier, it, it's a lot more challenging to design a great $25,000 sports car than a $250,000 sports car. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like if you are looking at a car, you know, we'll go back to the Miata as an example. If you discovered you had a noise or vibration issue, you, to solve it, you need to throw maybe cents or a few dollars to fix it. You know, if you had the same problem on a McLaren or Ferrari or Lamborghini, you could spend $5,000 to fix the problem, <laughs> you know, and still make profit on the car. You know, it's, it's the lower the price point, the more interesting the challenge, you know, at the Ford Motor Company when I was there, the smartest engineers were not working on the Mustang. They were working on the F-Series pickup truck because that's what made money. And, you know, everyone said, oh, I'd love to work on the Mustang. Well, that wasn't the cash cow. The cash cow was the F-150 pickup truck. <laughs> and so ultimately, the smartest engineers kind of get onto the projects that make money. And, you know, those are the volume products. And, and so that's, you know, for me, I, I think it's just fun to have cars that are accessible to anybody. You, you've, was, owned, you've owned a few Miatas in your day? 
actually no, because I got to drive him all the time for work. So uh, that's but, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we had, a, uh, had an eighty-four RX seven. It was my wife, so I, you know, I had that. But you know, that's the funny thing that when you work for a car company, you get to check out cars. And uh, going back when I, a couple of years after I graduated from school, one of my best friends from Cal Poly went to work for Lockheed, uh, and he was working on, I think it was the Stealth Fighter, and the engineering he was doing was so much more advanced than what I was doing. But I joked with him one day, I go, how often do they let you take a stealth fighter home for the weekend? <laughs> you know, I was like, you could work for five or 10 years on an airplane and never even sit in the plane, let alone fly it. You work for a car company, you may not get, it may not be as high tech or as well paid as the aerospace people, but you get to take cars home on the weekend. So. <laughs> There's something to be said for that. I, I got, um, I had the first ever speeding ticket in the third oh. gen, last generation RX-7. <laughs> I had the first ever speeding ticket in the fourth generation MX-5 Miata, too. my God. I bet it was worth it, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So during your time as a student, because a lot of times we forget that, that you were actually in formula at... Yeah. Uh, remind me what school it was again. Cal Poly San Luis. I was on the Baja team. We didn't have formula then. We couldn't get a formula team going. This was 19, the mid 80s. And so, so I don't know how long you were on the team or how long you competed, um, but what was your favorite competition moment? And how many competitions did you do with the team? Um, my favorite as a student my yeah. favorite competition moment was when we hosted the event on campus mm. because that was more a test of my management skills and everything. And we successfully held the event on our campus. And uh, the funny thing on that was, and so I was leading the event management, not the car engineering. I worked on the car the previous couple of years and uh, we never got really any support from the school. And, as I alluded to, it was more work to build the car than, or run the event and build the car. And uh, if you host the event, everyone's assuming that you've like, you've rigged the event, you know, you've already tested on the track or you, you've designed, you know, a turning radius on your car that'll just barely fit one of the turns and, you know, you've kind of rigged it. And it's like, well, we proved that was not true because we were still, our team on the car was still welding on the car the first morning of the competition. Yeah. <laughs> And so we finished dead last in our own competition. Dead oh last. God. And afterwards, the Dean of Engineering came to us the next week and apologized to us. Because he had no idea the level of support the other schools had. And the year after I graduated, the team got money from the school for the first time ever. Yeah, there we go. Wow. And so I mean, it took, we joked, it took public embarrassment on campus <laughs> to get that, but it was worth it for the school long-term. But um, so that was, you know, but the satisfaction, we got compliments from the schools, other schools that we ran a great event. So that was a high degree of satisfaction. My favorite moment as a judge on the competitions, and you'll like this one, Crystal, because you were on the business presentation team. There was a formula SAE presentation at Fontana, I don't know how many years ago it was, it was so good 
It was so good. And the team leader just crushed the Q&A. The president of Swift Engineering, which was still building race cars at the time, handed his business card to the team leader and said, I will hire you tomorrow. <laughs> he was that impressed with the presentation and the Q&A. He didn't even need to see a resume. Wow. You hired? Uh, no, she turned him <laughs> down. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I've already accepted a job at Toyota. <laughs> so, but it didn't matter. It was the fact that, you know, that was the magic that we're trying to create to showcase, you know, get talented people in front of people who can say yes to hiring. He didn't have to check with HR. He did. He was the president of the company. If he wanted to hire you, he could hire you. Wow. <laughs> and so that's my favorite moment uh, at a event as a judge. That's crazy. Uh, did they, um, I was going to ask you, the question just left my mind, but do, do they have um, like a recording of that presentation? No, no. Back then, this was, this was somewhere between 2008 and 2011. So, you know. They didn't really videotape them, huh? No, no smartphones or anything. Yeah. And yeah. I know like usually the top teams, uh, they don't, they don't release footage of of the presentations either yeah they don't want everyone copying each other and having a uh, you know the same thing but it was just good but ultimately that one you know for me and every judge is a little bit different on what they look for um i like to see that they can answer questions and what i saw that one there was another one a similar year there was a school from sweden and i remember this very vividly that you know Every time there was a question that came up, the presenter would usually turn to someone and say, uh, pull up, I think it's slide 42. And they had figured out like frequently asked questions and they had us, not only did they have answers ready for most questions that would be asked, they had a slide prepared. <laughs> and they wow. would, so they, they had supplemental material. <laughs> and it was like the judges were blown away that every question they asked, not only did they have an answer, they had supporting materials. <laughs> wow. So that was very cool. That was, was that like was hidden very, slides, right? That, it's kind of like the hidden slides. Yeah. But wow. so it's like you've only got a 10 minute presentation, so you can't have more than you know a dozen or so slides. So they had like another 50 <laughs> or questions that might pop up. Wow. It was it was impressive. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> um, so to kind of backtrack a little bit, you gave us some lesser known facts about, about the Miata. Um, can you give us some about the Nissan Ultra, the, the EV? Yeah, well, that was designed during a, backing up in 1990, the California Air Resources Board passed a mandate that in 1998, this is before you were probably even born, uh, 2% of all cars in California must be zero emission vehicles, electric. And so through the 90s, you know, the car companies are scrambling. How are we going to meet this? What are we going to produce? And around 1995, CARB actually backed off and said, you know, battery technology is junk. There's no electric cars that are going to be feasible at a price point that anyone will buy with a range that people will do. But we're going to hold you to building demonstration fleets. And so the eight largest companies by sales volume in California had to produce demonstration fleets. So that was General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, Nissan, Honda, uh, and Mazda, all had to produce demonstration fleets. And you got zero credit if it was lead acid batteries. You had to have an advanced battery. 
And back, you know, in this time frame, 1997, 98, when you're doing the final development, um, nickel metal hydride was the best battery available that was affordable. Didn't have the highest energy density, but it had great energy density for the price point. And there's always that trade-off. Um, so they got a multiplier based on that energy density. Uh, Nissan put lithium ion batteries in the Ultra, and which were much more expensive. But they were looking at this, if they put lithium ion batteries, they only had to build 300 cars. If they didn't done nickel metal hydride, they'd have to build 500 cars. And the total loss on the program would be greater. So they picked lithium ion so they'd lose less money on the overall program. <laughs> So there was only 300 of those cars brought to the U.S. And just like the EV1s and all the other ones, all of them were basically crushed at the end of the program. They were all, it was kind of like beta software. They were not real true production vehicles. Do you know, so I don't know if you just said that, but the performance of the lithium ion cars, how did they compare to like all the other companies? Did they have like some form of way that they measured well, the range, the problem with all the batteries, but Nick, early lithium ion, there was a degradation. Yeah. And uh, the, the Ultra, when the car was brand new, I think our official range was like 104 miles. But that was like driving like a steady 35 miles per hour with no stop and go, which is not realistic. You know, the best drivers usually got about 85 maybe 90 miles range out of that but after about two years the range was down to about 45 or 50 miles oh, that's how much the battery degraded and so that was a big problem back then you know lithium-ion batteries have advanced tremendously in the last 20 years yeah but early lithium had uh, severe degradation problems but the performance was still good i mean it wasn't like these crazy you know the the Tesla with the ludicrous mode or anything, you know, back then it was all about maximizing range. And, you know, I'd like to know what a Tesla range really is if you're driving it like a complete, you know, maniac. <laughs> because, you know, speed decreases range. You know, I drive a, I bought a used Nissan Leaf a couple of years ago because um, there's a lot of bargains out there in used electric vehicles because the resale value is poor. Yeah. Um. I mean, uh, you, having worked on, on EVs and, you know, with a mechanical engineering background, um, is there a way maybe you can tell people how to prepare if they want to work in electrical systems as an ME? Like if they want to work in EV, what would be something that would be great for them to, to know prior to moving into that industry? Well, I would say that, you know, my mindset, I still would have picked mechanical engineering but if I were to meet a student, if I were if I were talking to a high school student today who was felt equally skilled in both mechanical and electrical, I would probably encourage them to go electrical. But the the ones who are going to have the greatest opportunities are the ones who feel comfortable in both. You know, yeah. Motivo likes doesn't want to hire someone who will only do mechanical or only do electrical. The nature of the small team there. They want mechanicals who can also do some electrical. You may not be the expert in it. You know, there may be others right around you who can really take the lead and help on the most difficult aspects. But I think it's becoming more and more important for mechanicals to be at a higher literacy rate, if you will, on electrical. I, you know, candidly, I struggled with those. Uh, 
I joke that, you know, someone asked me, how are you an electrical engineer? I go, great, took all those classes twice. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I struggle with that stuff. I mean, mechanical, I could see it. I could walk into the shop, you know, and I could do the experiments and I could figure it out. I struggled on the theory, you know, so, you know, mechanical vibrations, I think I got a C in the, the lecture and an A in the lab, you know, uh, it was even harder when I was looking at like circuits and things. So, you know, I'm an example of someone who didn't fully embrace both, you know, just cause I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. But I think it is very important that mechanicals, if they really want to have the greatest opportunities doing projects and, and maybe they should help out, you know, uh, have a, a senior EE on the formula team or whatever mentor the junior level Emmy, you know, that would be useful, but gain some experience, however, wherever you can. Any yeah. particular topics you think in electrical, they, they probably should focus on. Uh, not really necessarily just a general understanding. I mean, it kind of depends on what you want to go into, whether it's, you know, do you think you're going to want to go into circuit design, software development, you know, controls, you know, I guess it kind of depends what your interest is. You know, I mean, if you want to go into electric vehicles, like, well, you better understand power systems and motors. Mm. You, know, you know, if you, are you just the mechanical engineer who figured out how to package the motor into the car? Or are you the mechanical engineer who could also look at, offer some insight into things about that electrical motor and the choice of it and the positioning of it and things like that. So the more you know about other subjects, and the same thing applies to like on the business side and things that, you know, cars are not bought purely based on, you know, the engineering uh, quality of the car. You know, it's what are the features, you know, someone in product planning figured out what is the range of features we're going to offer in this car. And, you know, there's other people, you know, the styling, you know, it was like uh, years ago, I went to an aerodynamics conference where Dr. Paul McCready was speaking. And Dr. McCready was the founder of AeroVironment. AeroVironment uh, has done amazing projects over the years. They, they kind of built a reputation on things like the first human-powered airplane, the, one, the human-powered airplane that flew over the English Channel. That was done by AeroVironment. Uh, and they did the original Sun Racer that GM did. That was built by AeroVironment. The original GM Impact was built by them. So a lot of PhD geniuses there, and Dr. McCready was one of them. I mean, brilliant man, far smarter than I ever will be. But when we were talking at lunch, he was talking about we should optimize a body shape and then just build it for 40 years. He had no comprehension of people buying car based on aesthetics. That people don't want to buy a car that looks like a, the same as it was 40 years ago, even if that was an optimized shape. You know, it's kind of, you looked how he dressed, it's like, I guess your wife dressed you this morning because it doesn't, oh. you know, or just, he was such an analytical person and a genius, but he didn't understand human nature. <laughs> That's an interesting so, um, and, and so, you know, you look at that, you know, when you're building, you know, some things like, you know, whether it's your Baja car, I mean, and I've seen that in your car and the other good teams where it's like, you've got to have a good looking car. Yeah. <laughs> if they both work, which one are you going to buy? You're going to buy the better looking one and or the ones less expensive, you know, unless you're someone who was 
you know, if someone threw on a name tag that said Ferrari on it, well, maybe I'm buying, paying for a premium because of that name tag. But most people are going to say, no, I want the less expensive one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always harped on these uh, on these Baja kids to make sure that, that the car looks nice. There's always a stickler for that. Yeah. And I remember um, when, when Luis was captain. Um, the stripes? I, yeah, the stripes. I was so... <laughs> about making sure the car just looked as because it's it's essentially and bill um bill it was the other person that we interviewed um he always said your your baja car or whatever your sa vehicle is is your resume on wheels yeah so if your car is looking spiffy those judges are looking at you and they're like yeah. i'm gonna pay more attention to this guy right it's, it's the rolling resume we call it yeah, exactly yeah it's, yeah definitely <laughs> Um, so you've obviously you've worked with EVs, you've you've been in the industry. What's I, the hardest thing you've had to deal with as an engineer? I mean, there are a ton of moving pieces when it comes to engineering, dealing with people in finance, dealing with upper management, things like that, technicians. What's one of the hardest things you've had to deal with? Uh sometimes it's been bad management places, you know, and just dealing with, you know. I, I talk about when I give my career talk that sometimes a bad boss is a good thing. If you, if you have a great boss, you're inspired to do your best work. You'll just work your butt off. You know, you'll do whatever it takes because you're inspired by their leadership. If you have a mediocre boss, you just kind of, okay, this is good enough. And it's five Oh one. I'm out of here. If you have a compelling jerk of a boss, you're inspired to get a better job. And there's going to be times though, where it's just, there's decisions made that you just have to, okay, <laughs> I, I don't get it. Or I understand, I think it's wrong, but eh, you just have to grit your teeth and make that decision whether you're going to live with it or move on or fight, which sometimes is not, there are losing battles. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's frustrating. There's things that you get, it is challenging. like electric vehicles. You know, Ford, we worked on a program for a couple of years. I think we spent two years developing an electric delivery truck. And this was, it was in the mid-90s. <laughs> we were looking at what um, today might be like an Amazon delivery vehicle. But back then, our, our target was um, a bread truck. So like, um, you know, Intamins or whoever, uh, Dolly Madison, you know, a large truck that delivers every day, goes out from a bakery, the a circuit of supermarkets. At the time, most of these were old school diesel trucks that were gross polluters. They would drive five miles, sit for 45 minutes while they serviced that store, do another cold start. So just horrible pollution vehicles. So we were gonna do an electric version of this. And we had targeted fleet sales to do this. And the first time we met with California Air Resources Board, they thought it was a brilliant idea. And we worked on it for another year. And then when we finally got discussion of what credits would we get towards the um, 1998 mandate, they said, yeah, we, we really think you should build cars for consumers. We can't give you a multiplier on that. We're not going to be able to give you any additional credits. And we had the scientific data to show how much more that was going to clean the air. And they just rejected it. That was, that was disheartening. We spent two years working on this 
and then they just pulled the plug on it because you know didn't work from a regulatory standpoint yeah that's crazy i've i've actually been really excited about a lot of that movement towards like replacing all these like uh i guess they're they're storage trucks or i don't know what you would call them but but like industrial trucks going to the electric and trucks in general like i'm waiting for tesla to come up with an electric truck i think that i would buy (laughs) i think that would be a lot of fun because it's like a huge vehicle i mean like we've we've gotten to the point fortunately that we've been able to do the the consumer car right and it's like i think tesla has that pretty down but i'm curious to see like what about like tow trucks or within within (laughs) probably three years you're going to have a choice of probably at least four different electric pickup trucks or even like a forklift. Like, can you imagine an electric forklift? That there's, would be so much fun. There's a bunch of those out there. Or, or like all the like all the industrial vehicles that they have out there. It's just like fun. Yeah. To think about. But yeah, electric forklifts are a thing, and there's um, it's kind of funny with forklifts. You're not worried about the weight penalty for batteries because you actually <laughs> want the extra weight for ballast. That's uh, funny. And, and particularly for forklifts that operate inside a building, you don't want them running off of propane or whatever they were operating off of. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Electric for forklifts is perfect. Perfect. Who do you think we're going to be seeing some more uh, EV trucks? I mean, we got Rivian, we have Tesla. You mentioned well, you, the. We well, got, well, got Ford and General Motors as well. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think Chrysler will do one. So, I mean, and it, I think you're going to see, and there's several others, um, uh, small players. It'll be interesting to see on the s- startups like Rivian. Rivian seems to have a very solid business case behind him and backing, but there's a lot of other smaller ones that probably won't survive. I mean, there's uh, quite a few EV startups here in Southern California, and you have to just assume that, you know, they can't all make it, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. It's it's so crazy how Tesla has made these EVs very mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, but and the question is, will Tesla ever make money on a consistent basis not selling credits? They're not actually making money selling cars yet. Um, it's interesting to think about. I mean, they've been they've been able to drop the prices, so they have to have some kind of plan. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, we got a couple questions from people who uh, are following us kind of like around social media. So we have Andrew Wong. He went to Cal State LA. He's an alum. Actually, he's in, in SoCal. He's on yeah, the I know. <laughs> meetings and tour team, right? Um, right? He's asking, how many foot-pounds of torque can uh, his factory Miata drivetrain handle before <laughs> he has to reinforce it? <laughs> Uh, good question. I that I would probably you know call the guys that let's see was it Monster. There's several companies that do that. Probably call Moss Motors up in Santa Barbara because <laughs> they've probably blown up more parts because they do a lot of uh, uh, Miata uh, aftermarket bits. I'm not sure. <laughs> but Andrew has a death wish with with his Miata. <laughs> I remember uh, I drove one back sometime in the early 90s the first monster miata which is a company out of san diego that was putting um five liter ford v8s in the miatas okay. and it fit. 
You know, didn't even have to modify the hood. It fit under the hood. Oh my goodness. So whatever fits basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, these things look like vipers. <laughs> oh my god. Um, we do have another question in this one. This one's from uh, Dr. Bachman. Um, why should students get involved with SAE? I mean, by now they've been listening to the podcast, they should probably get a good idea, but sort of the well, same. A lot of it's experience and it's connections. I mean, at, at school, you know, working on the project, it's the experience of working on, you know, a project like Formula or Baja or Supermind or whatever one they choose. Because in essence, by completing the project, you've demonstrated the industry, you can do three critical things. You can deliver a time, project on time, on budget, as a team. And that's really, really important. So that's a key thing. But, but ultimately, I think what you found is, you know, the connections you can make. That no one likes to do cold calling. You know, you don't want to call up some company and ask. If you can get a referral, that's so much easier. And, you know, once we get to know you, you know, you, you learn, you meet people on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. And what's nice about SAE, you know, if you get involved in it is, you know, you go to work, you know, if you're a large company, you know, Crystal, you're now at a large company, you know, you're probably not going to spend that much time with vice president level people early in your career. Probably you know, not. <laughs> probably not. You will eventually, but not in your first year or two. You get involved with SAE, you know, on the board on a volunteer level, everyone's equal. And so, you know, you're dealing with people like Mike Moyer and Mike Gidry, who are like the director of engineering at their operation. So it kind of cuts through a lot of that clutter. And so you get to make contacts that you would not necessarily make on your own. And that's one of the key values. And it just it opens doors that, you know, you know, I didn't have a contact at Edel Brock when we want to do that. So I just, I found one and just said, Hey, we want, I want to bring in a hundred students to your <laughs> private museum that you don't open in public. And they said, yeah, okay. <laughs> but if I just called up and said, I want to bring a hundred of my friends in, who are you? No, that that's not going to fly. Yeah. What do you think the, the strengths and the weaknesses are of engineers today? I guess, I mean, like we're, we're asking them to join SAE just because we've seen the benefit but like what are what are the like the best engineer that you've ever met and the worst <laughs> I, I <laughs> we don't have to mention them by name if you don't want to yeah, but like well, the worst engineer that you ever met like what was characteristic of them what i don't want to boil it down to individuals but this is more like data points you know over the last few years i've visited i think i'm up to like 45 different universities i've visited and given presentations at. And so I have a lot of data points, you know, 40 plus schools and several thousand students over the years. And I've been doing it long enough to where I think that, you know, an engineer who graduates in 2020 or 2021 has better technical skills than ever before. You have more engineering knowledge, relatively speaking, when you graduate than I did when I graduated. And that's good. Uh, the understanding, communication, and bigger picture understanding is weak. And I, so I, I see, you know, a lot of students who don't seem to understand, uh, you know, just some of the times common courtesy, 
you know, and, and things of when you meet somebody, how to engage with them, you know, how to write a proper resume, how to do follow up. You know, the lack of follow up from students, I think, is worse than ever. And maybe that's just me being a cynical old guy now, but I think that <laughs> is worse. You know, that your analytical skills are top notch, but, you know, and here again, I also have dealt with a lot of these teenage race drivers. You know, you know, I would deal with uh, an inspiring race driver who would be, no joke, 15 years old, who's been racing for a decade. Wow. They started in carts. And any joke you'd have about a soccer mom or little league dad is nothing compared to a go-kart parent. <laughs> Uh, parents who've been dumping, and this is no exaggeration, 50 grand a year in their kid's karting career. So yeah. by the time they get to the age 15, they're very, very fast. They've got, you know, none of us is going to touch them if we go over to K1. They're going to just bury us. But they don't understand the business of the sport. And they just think that I've won some trophies, pay me. It's like, well, it doesn't work like that in this sport. <laughs> And some of the engineers are the same way of like, I designed a formula car. I should be, you know, the person running, you know, I should be designing the next Camry, not just working on a small component. Um, a friend of mine told me a story at Ford that this one engineer, he was a superstar on the formula team. They hired him and he quit after 18 months. His resignation note was he could not change Ford into the company they needed to be. So he, after 18 months, he thought he was already smarter than anybody else in management at the company. <laughs> kind of like, that's not going to work out well. You know, that you still, you've got tremendous knowledge, you know, and skills, but you still don't have a lack, you don't have the depth of experience. And, you know, it's not appropriate for someone like me to shoot down your ideas, you know, if you come up with something crazy, but it may be, let's discuss that further and maybe bring up, hey, that was tried on this car and this car, and it didn't work. So go look at those and come back and say what you'll do differently. You know, I, I think that there's also, you know, my generation has to have a little more respect for the, I, the skills that you, your generation does bring to the table here. But there is a lack of understanding of how to communicate between the two. And, you know, right now, you know, if I'm trying to sell you something, I have to figure out how to get to you. And, you know, maybe that means I have to learn TikTok or Instagram, which I'm not on, because I need to market to you. If you want to market yourself to me to hire you, you have to figure out how to meet me on my terms. And I think a lot of students haven't figured that out. That, you know, they have to, you know, kind of, uh, they're selling themselves and they want to get the cool job, they got to figure out how to reach the right people who can say yes. And I think students are a little bit weak on that. And that's one of the reasons of getting involved with a group like SAE. And, and like I said, some of the other ones too, you know, I think women should absolutely be uh, involved with SWE, great organization. And I hope that we continue to do more events with SWE and SHIP and Nesby and some of the other ones like that. All right, we got one more question for you. Actually, okay. no, we have two more questions, but one of them is pretty quick. Um, so I remember we were, I don't remember where we were talking about this, but we were talking about the Grassroots Motorsports magazine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, there's another, this, this one, I love this competition. 
the only challenge for California schools is that the competition is in Florida. Right. Uh, they run a competition called the $2,000 challenge, which if you know about lemons racing and some of that stuff. That's a little bit of a ripoff of, I shouldn't say ripoff, but inspired by, I think, the $2,000 mm -hmm. challenge. So the $2,000 challenge is you have to build a car that will do three things. It'll be a drag race on an NHRA quarter mile, an autocross, and then you have to present your build book. So it's kind of like your design and your cost presentation all rolled into one. How did you build this car for under $2,000? And a lot of it is buying damaged parts at junkyards and remanufacturing because <laughs> labor is free. And uh, it's a pretty fascinating competition. And the teams range from very professional. I mean, actual professional teams do this just for fun. <laughs> to high school teams, college teams. And then they'll just be like uh, three friends who decided to kick in you know, or four friends kicked in $500 each. They bought a <laughs> bunch of beer and they sat and built a car in the parking lot of the hotel the night before the competition. <laughs> Literally, that's how some of them are. Mm -hmm. um, but I've worked with two teams, uh, two college teams to showcase their talents. And one uh, was just featured, timing of this is yesterday's Wall Street Journal. Oh, if wow. You, look, if you saw I posted on my Facebook and LinkedIn. Page. I think I saw it. That was like, yeah. W, I think. So, uh, Michigan Tech, uh, Abby Hempy, I met when I spoke. She was an undergraduate at uh, University of Minnesota. I spoke there. And a year after I spoke there, she reached out to me. She said, hey, I'm in grad school. I've already done the Formula SA thing. I'm getting ready to uh, graduate. And I'm looking for some career advice. And talking with her, found out two things about her. One, she loves BMWs. And two, she's also an artist. I said, well, have you ever heard of the BMW art cars? And she goes, no, what are those? I go, look it up and call me back. And so she did. She goes, those are amazing. <laughs> she built a $2,000 BMW art car. So her artistic vision on the car. And um, I won't spoil her news, but one of the companies she ended up talking with during this whole development process has made her a verbal job offer. I'm hoping she doesn't accept it, that she ended up getting a job based on doing this project. And as a nice little bonus, um, uh, ended up featured in the Wall Street Journal. That's a lot of fun. We got to yeah. get her on here, too. Yeah, you could. Yeah, she, she <laughs> could. Uh, and it's one of those things that it, it could be a, that might be a, almost a better project for um, Cal State LA alums or something. The competition's in October. But you, that way you could just do something just for pure fun. <laughs> oh uh, the biggest challenge, though, is getting the car then to Florida in October. <laughs> oh Come on, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh this is so cool. He's looking it up right now. Yeah. Oh, and, and there's there's themes on. I mean, uh, one of the teams a couple of years ago did the uh, Scooby-Doo mystery machine. Everyone dressing <laughs> up in costume. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at the cars, and I think a lot of them are, they're just so creative, right? Yeah. And like $2,000, it doesn't matter. Like, I feel like, people are almost throwing like the the prestige and like the formality of the competition out the window and they're yeah. getting real real creative and i i like the the restriction of the budget because you know a yeah. lot of times in these competition teams it's just like once a team gets good like they get sponsorships and then they're right. like leagues above everybody else and like nobody else can catch up right it gets a little bit stagnant but i like the idea that it's restricted by budget and right 
see what you can Frankenstein together. <laughs> but I mean, you'd be stunned at the level of workmanship on some of them. I mean, there's people who have, I mean, thousands and thousands of hours of work into it. <laughs> uh, some of the metal working is like just, well, in one, you've probably seen similar levels of craftsmanship at Singer. Literally, some of these were just, it's a work of art, mm -hmm. the metal working in there. And, you know, it was the same chunk of aluminum or something, but if you know what you're doing, you can make art out of it, you know. Oh my God, I'm, I'm looking at, at, at their car now. It's got like rocks over it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and they're actually rocks from a, a particular area that have a fluorescent. When you shine a black light, they glow. Oh. oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Awesome. It would be uh, cool to see those in person. Uh, write that down for future uh, SAE SoCal tour. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, if you want, uh, we can hook you up. You can talk to one of the editors from Grassroots Motorsports Magazine. Yes. Send them our way. Send yeah. them all our way. We'll get JG uh, Pastor Jack. Uh, would be a hoot for you to talk to. <laughs> be a great podcast he he used to do his own podcast back there for the magazine they, they stopped doing it it just got too complicated but he'd be a great guest on your show we'll do it no questions asked all right um so while juan's daydreaming over there with those two thousand dollars <laughs> we'll wrap it up with the last question so you've you've had a very interesting life in terms of you know being a student in sae then being a judge and being you know um, an organizer for the team working at all these really great car companies so where do you see yourself in the future uh good question I don't know I mean right <laughs> I'm at a point in my life where I can be kind of choosy I mean uh I really love consulting at Motivo just because of the amazing projects they work on there uh that's pretty cool and sometime really once we get past COVID you know, we could do a um, Cal State LA tour of Motivo or something. But so okay. that's good. And a lot of it now, you know, you know, I joke that, you know, we all make choices where you want to spend your money and what you do things. You know, I don't, we don't have kids. So I don't have huge financial obligations. So I can kind of be choosy. So I joke that now when I pick clients, it's like if I wouldn't spend my own money to have lunch with you, I don't want to work for you. <laughs> uh, so I can be choosy on stuff and do, you know, pro bono volunteer work. So, I mean, uh, I don't, you know, I enjoy working with the student groups just because I get, you know, I keep up on what's the latest. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure what's next. It's hard to say, but <laughs> probably a little more of the same. Um, you know, my non-car stuff, you know, my wife and I, we volunteer with a group called Food Forward. We harvest, do backyard harvesting for food banks. So, you know, harvested 4,000 pounds of produce this year. That's <laughs> cool. So, and uh, so, you know, things that have nothing to do with engineering, but just, you know. Just for funsies. To, yeah, just something that's useful. You know, we do work with uh, animal welfare groups. So, you know, the, the one of the coolest things I ever do with Mazda, we did a partnership with the SPCA for Monterey County. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were promoting shelter animal adoptions on race cars. Oh. And we raised over the course of 10 years, I think we raised over $150,000 for the shelter mm -hmm. and it got a lot of animals adopted. So that was pretty cool. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's working with, I bet it was a lot of fun working with 
puppies and yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> puppies and cars two of my favorite things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we uh we start closing off um i know dean you got a lot of stuff that you want to plug um uh, sae board things like that so i mean the floor is yours well just i mean uh, yes i mean i i want Pitch for anybody who's an SA member, make sure your first year professional membership is free. Don't blow it. Take that. Get involved. If you move out of the area, if you need an introduction, you know, if you take a, a cool job in Chicago, I'll introduce you to the section officers in Chicago. Get involved there. You know, that you're starting a long career path. Stay involved in SAE. Um, particularly, uh, I will give a plug for Motivo. They're looking right now. They're, they're hiring. So particularly for electrical or software, if you know any software gurus, so particularly if there's anyone who's been out in industry for a couple of years. So if any of your alums are watching this, go to motivo.com and look up the career listings and you can reference that I directed you there. Um, I'll send you some links and stuff that you can post. But like I said, you know, thank you for asking about Grassroots Motorsports. Uh, it's my favorite magazine. They're really cool people there. And yeah, I, I could help you if, you if you want to do a Cal State LA entry for that. I think that the biggest challenge will be just handling the travel budget. But, you know, you get one person to either do a road trip or you raise a couple, you know, you raise some extra money, just put it on a truck and transport it that way and fly to Florida. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, well, awesome. Thank you, Dean. We really appreciate you being here. Um, uh, hopefully we have you again because you definitely have a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah. We'd, we'd uh, love to dig in a little bit. Yeah bit more um so this has been the staying mighty podcast thank you okay. for listening see you next thank time you. thank you thank you for listening to staying mighty podcast i'm um, sure you can follow us on twitter linkedin facebook instagram and tiktok with the handle castle you can also check out our website castle if you want to check out more stuff about our team and we also have some merch on there as well you can also join our staying mighty podcast subreddit if you'd like thanks again for listening see ya the views, information, or opinions expressed during the Staying Muddy podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Baja SAE and Cal State Los Angeles.